Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting January 30th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week, an anniversary celebration with Carl Raggio, formerly of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and some funny stuff with a couple of researchers teaching computers to recognize jokes. Why teach a computer to get jokes? To get to the other side of the interface. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Lawrence Mazlack is the director of the Applied Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at the University of Cincinnati. Julia Taylor is the graduate student who has been trying to develop ways for computers to understand humor at a very basic level of wordplay and knock-knock jokes. I called them at the lab in Cincinnati. Professor Mazlack, Miss Taylor, good to talk to you today. Hi, Steve. Hello, Steve. You have research uh, going on that, uh, well, it's really serious business, but uh, you're trying to teach computers to get jokes. And right away, that's kind of a funny idea, but there's obviously a serious reason to do it. Why do you do that? Well, we're interested in uh, uh, sociable computing, which means that we like computers to be able to uh, naturally interact with human beings without a lot of formal uh, problems between them, a lot of formal walls. And the best way to do this, or at least from the human's point of view, is using normal language or natural language. And But it probably needs to be informal language, which means that it can't be precise step by step by step. And so understanding humor is part of understanding uh, uh, informal language. It's interesting when... When you do a um, a word a spell check on a word document, maybe you, maybe that's uh, one of the simplest examples of the kind of problems that come up in communication. The word, for example, I, I constantly type from instead of form, and spell check doesn't catch that. It thinks it's spelled correctly and everything's okay, but the sentence doesn't make any sense. So, is is it a similar kind of concept to try to uh, to try to improve informal communication, to uh, to get people to understand each other, and that's that's where humor comes into play? Or get, to get computers and people to understand each other, I should say. Well, humor is one example of informal communication. and But, but the issue is to try and uh, re- remove the barrier between human beings and uh, uh, machines. And often uh, your example of... of from and uh, uh, form uh, is, uh, is, a, is a good example, but it's a little bit more elaborate to try and do informal communication. However, the basis of it is the same. Uh, the reason why form and form are, uh, from are confused is because the software that you use will not take context into an account. And to understand humor, you have to deal with context. So right away, you have to educate the program with some context before it can even start to appreciate wordplay? Right. To understand any kind of humor, you have to have knowledge about the world, uh, which would come in a context of some sort. So, so a computer program would have to have that knowledge. So what kind of context? I know, for example, that the, the earliest attempts at communicating uh, humor to the program was uh, knock-knock jokes. So what kind of context do you supply so that the, con- the, the knock-knock jokes get appreciated by the program? Um, we put a lot of world knowledge in, in anthology. Um, so we are taking 
everything that we can out of a children's dictionary because a lot of knock-knock jokes are for children. Um, so we are hoping that the information that is there, a lot of information that is there, uh, will be useful for us. So uh, when uh, we are uh, working with an algorithm for knock-knock jokes, uh, we will um, take a third line and then come up with some words that sound alike, and then it, we would go into the ontology to see how they fit with the sentence that in the fifth line. Uh, the the third line being the 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 uh, response to who's there, and the fifth line being the the punchline of the knock knock joke. You're currently trying to move past the knock knock jokes into some some more sophisticated wordplay. What's that about? Well, es- essentially, sort of standard wordplay jokes. For example, my favorite is a kid's joke. What's black and white and red all over? Turns out to be tough to uh, uh, analyze. Now, Julia also has one where she deals with uh, mouse uh, mice. Go ahead. Uh, computer teacher, what do you, why are you bringing cheese into the computer room? And the little boy responds, you told me I was going to work with a mouse today. Right, right. So these are the types of jokes that we are trying to analyze, those that have some context behind them, but the joke is based on wordplay. Uh, let's go back to the black and white and red, because I, I know a number of punchlines for that. What What's the punchline that you're using? A newspaper. A newspaper, okay. How how do you know that the the program or the computer that's running the program has appreciated the joke? I don't think we want the program to appreciate the joke at this point. We just wanted to know whether or not it's a joke. Um, we don't want the computer to have emotions necessarily. We want the computer to know when we have them. Well, I think we're different here. That what Julia's trying to do is to get the computer to recognize when a joke has occurred. Now, to me, when you said appreciate, that means whether it's a funny joke or a somewhat funny joke uh, on that order. Myself, I'm personally interested in doing that. And perhaps my next next student will be interested in recognizing gradations of humor. Okay, so the... the uh Right now, there's the computer does not uh, type back at you, ha ha. No, right now it just says yes, it's a joke, or excuse me, types back yes, it's a joke. No, it's not a joke. Right, it just understands when the form is is that of a joke. Right. People are probably familiar with this kind of concept teaching teaching machines humor. I mean, the the uh, example that comes to mind is numerous attempts uh, on Star Trek Next Generation with Mr. Data uh, trying to get him to to uh, better better experience humanity by being able to understand humor. So does is that just an interesting thing to you or does that actually in some way inform what you do? Uh, well, I'm not sure if we are trying uh, for a machine to understand humor. Um, I would say we are trying to recognize when it occurs. That's probably more of what we are doing. Um, in that sense, Data probably recognized when something was a joke, whether or not he understood it, yes, or or had emotions towards it. That that's a different question. Yeah, because Data's problem was is that he didn't have emotion. Right, uh, and, right. Yeah, and so intellectually he could understand. For example, I I believe Data liked uh, uh, chamber music and was a accomplished player. But whether or not he had emotional response to what he did, that's a different question. 
and that's one of the older questions going back to Turing's uh, uh, article on uh, artificial intelligence, whether or not something needs to have an emotional response in order to uh, be uh, artificially intelligent. We don't know if a, a computer would have emotional response uh, if it was successful uh, in recognizing human. It might. I don't know. Well, what's What's your take on that, Miss Taylor? I don't think I want computer to have emotions, but that's open to discussions, I guess, whether or not they should. Yeah, after reading uh, a lot of Antonio Damasio, uh, I I tend to think that without a physical body that uh, really experiences the environment, it would probably be pretty dangerous to have a, a disembodied intelligence that did experience emotion. Well, well, embodiment is uh, one of the basic questions uh, on whether or not a machine can comprehend the world the same way that we do. Uh, the people up at MIT, uh, MIT are doing uh, some work in uh, embodiment. And George Lakoff, the linguist out at Berkeley, uh, he, uh, he believed that we perceive uh, the world uh, through our embodiment and our reaction to the world you know, being six foot or four foot tall, whatever it is, and the way we interact with the world. It might be that embodiment is necessary. I don't know. I want to tell you one of my favorite jokes. Okay. And uh, maybe, maybe it can it can be useful eventually because it's uh, it's got a couple of different things going on and, and uh, maybe it could be a good test for the program eventually. And the, and the joke is, what's the difference between Noah's Ark and Joan of Arc? What's the difference? Noah's Ark was made of wood, and Joan of Arc was made of Orleans. <laughs> oh, bad. bad. Uh, but, uh, but, the, but there's the other, uh, there's a similar joke, uh, two vultures, uh, get on the airplane. Uh, and this, uh, each one of them is carrying a dead raccoon, two dead raccoons. The stewardess comes up to them and says, uh, Gentlemen, you're only allowed one carry-on. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, uh, Dr. Mazelag, Ms. Taylor, very interesting. Uh, what, what do you think, where would you, I mean, this is the, the hackney journalist's question, but where do you see things five or ten years from now in this field? My belief is, is that we'll be able to understand at least wordplay jokes, and, and this will lead to more sociable computers, uh, making machines more accessible to people who really are, are afraid to push the button at all. So, uh, so elderly people, uh, people who are who are uh, uh, just not that comfortable with technology maybe could have a more seamless relationship with their technology. Right. Well, it doesn't only have to be elderly people. It, it could be anybody who is, for whatever reason, doesn't think precisely and exactly the way a computer needs. Another aspect of what I work on, I work on uh, soft computing and fuzzy logic, which again tries to put gradations of belief into things. Gradations of belief into things? Right. Uh, 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 for example, if, if we uh, say a, a restaurant, we're talking about the quality of uh, food at a restaurant, uh, the computers currently basically deal with the food is bad or good, zero one. However, we like to be able to say, well, it's very good, it's sort of good, it's a little bit rotten, or it's awful. Uh, and 
people think uh, think in terms of this uh, way, but it's difficult to communicate with a machine in terms of this gradation of belief. Right, right. So uh, ultimately, you want to be able to say, waiter, what's this fly doing in my soup? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> very good. Uh, Professor Mays, like Miss Taylor, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, snakes hear through their jaws. Story two, in April, the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board will decide whether to approve a program that will grant master's degrees in science from a creationist perspective. Story three, researchers are working on contact lenses with informational displays so you can see like the Terminator. And story four, college students are responsible for almost half of all internet movie piracy. We'll be back with the answer, but first, January 31st marks an important anniversary in the history of the final frontier. Fifty years ago on that date, the U.S. got its first satellite into orbit. It not only joined Sputnik, but actually returned some valuable scientific data regarding the presence of the Van Allen belt, the charged particles around the Earth that are held in place by the magnetic field. Carl Raggio was intimately involved in getting the satellite up. I called him last week at his home in Glendale, California. Mr. Raggio, how are you today? I'm very fine, Steve. What were you doing 50 years ago today? Well, 50 years ago today, we were getting ready for launch. That would be the launch of Explorer 1, although we didn't call it Explorer 1. We called it DEAL. D-E-A-L? Yes, just like in cards, because that's what we played while we were waiting for launches. Poker? Uh, Usually gin rummy. Gin rummy, okay. Uh Uh-huh. So uh, you're, you launched finally on January 31st, but what, what what was the environment like? Tell you know if we were there 50 years ago, we're speaking on January 23rd. What was going on a week before launch? We were pretty anxious, and uh, for many reasons. One is that uh, uh, we were under the gun to go ahead and get something up, as uh, uh, because of Sputnik, and uh, in fact there were two Sputniks and. It, that only exacerbated the whole timing, and that was that uh, uh, we were all waiting and anticipating uh, a good launch, and uh, as it turned out, it did launch and, well. And what was your actual job? Mine was a designer on Explorer 1. And what were your responsibilities? One, to do the design work on the satellite and to uh, fit the Van Allen experiment into a six-inch cylinder. So talk about that kind of technical challenge. Uh, you had several, and uh, one happened to be a weight constraint, which uh, so we used fiberglass as the principal materials in there because it has a great weight-to-strength ratio. And uh, we didn't have much in the way of power supply other than batteries, so we used batteries. They were dry cells. Our communication, uh, the antennas, turned out to be uh, a WIP antenna, and if you look at the Explorer, uh, you'll find that it has four pieces of wire. And uh, this was done for two reasons. One is not only as an antenna, but to maintain stability in space, because uh, the last three stages were in a spinning tub. So you wanted to affect a gyro type of thing. Mm-hmm. You take a look at the outside of the Explorer, which happens to be the upper part of the, of the uh, uh, four stage, and you'll find that it's striped, and the striping on it was to, <laughs> it, 
was our thought in terms of maintaining a stable environment for the the batteries and communication system, and that's uh, because it was spinning. It would give us a gray tone, so we wouldn't absorb too much in the way of uh, sun energy as we were on the sunny side, and at correspondingly, uh, we wouldn't lose too much in the way of heat on the backside. So you figure you'll split the difference and stripe the thing. Yeah. Okay. We, we knew how to spell thermodynamics, but we didn't know a great deal more than that at that time. <laughs> okay. And uh, you were specifically looking for the Van Allen belts, which you figured yes. had to be there. Yes. And and the instrument was one that, that would give us a measurement. And uh, incidentally, I, I, it's a little-known fact, but Explorer 3, which was launched a couple of months later, about four months later, uh, confirmed the presence of the Van Allen belts. So what exactly did Explorer 1 confirm then? That there were, uh, that there was cosmic radiation emanating from the bolt. Okay. As opposed to the presence of the belts themselves. Yeah. So, uh, you worked with Werner von Braun. He was, he was part of it. He, he was the director of the Army Ballistics Missile Agency located in Huntsville. Mm-hmm. They, they took several trips out here and the first stage was a modified Redstone launching missile mm-hmm. and it was an artillery weapon. In fact, it was a, a derivative of the V2s that were flown in World War II. And the last three stages were JPL. The configuration was called Jupiter C and the last three uh, stages we produced. And they were composed of, uh, as I mentioned, the spinning tub with uh, 11 uh, scale-down sergeant missiles, which were six inches in diameter on the uh, on the perimeter. And then inside were three scale-down sergeant missiles. And Jupiter-C was uh, a program to test materials for reentry. In other words, the ICBMs and IRBMs, the intercontinental ballistics missiles, uh, needed materials so that they could re-enter uh, the atmosphere without burning up. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were doing. And we took away the cone, which was the test vehicle for that, inserted a four-stage, and that became Explorer 1. Right, because with a three-stage rocket, you can do the ICBMs, and you knew that if you just tack on a fourth stage, you could reach orbit. We had proposed this about two years before to the... Uh, Keep in mind, we were under the Department of Defense at that time, and uh, we had proposed this to uh, the Department of Defense. Uh, They said no, it was not uh, uh, something that they wanted because I think things were so volatile between Russia and ourselves, and it was shortly after the incident with Gary Powers and the U-2 that was shot down over Russia. Mm -hmm. So consequently, they didn't want one more thing to agitate it since we were using a military booster. But uh, they began a program at that time, uh, uh, coincident with what we were doing, called Vanguard. And uh, Vanguard didn't have a success story. So when Sputnik was launched, uh, they reverted to what we had and, and told us to get something up. Right. Once Sputnik was, was up in the air, all the cards were on the table, if you will. Yeah, because the, the, uh, the Russians had used an ICBM for a launch vehicle. Now, uh, I just wanted to ask you about Von Braun because I saw a quote. Uh, you were quoted in a newspaper article as saying that he could sell ice to Eskimos. He could. He had, he had a personality and a charm that, that 
went beyond and, and that he he was he was a great spokesman at that time for the space program and it's probably one of the reasons why he was able to survive in every environment that he found himself in i think so i think he uh this this man knew that in one way or another we were going to go to space mm-hmm on the 31st, we have the 50th anniversary. Let's also go back now 50 years. What what was it like when the thing goes up and you start to receive the telemetry and it's in orbit? What was the the atmosphere like? <laughs> Pardon the pun because there was no atmosphere up there. <laughs> but what was the atmosphere like in the room where you guys were? And you're, and you're a bunch of young guys. You're all you're in your I, 20s, I was, early 30s. That's right. I was in my late 20s. In fact, I'll be 80 this coming July. Mm-hmm. So I was one of the younger ones. We... We were about as happy as one can ever get. Uh, my wife never knew what I was working on. Uh-huh. And so uh, it wasn't until 11 o'clock that night that I called her and said, we did it. And it was kind of, did what? And <laughs> said, we put one up there. Uh-huh. And so uh, uh, she found out with all those long hours and everything else where, where I was at the lab doing this because we were under the auspices of the the uh, army and uh, uh, everything we did was secret, so you you weren't able to ex- tell anybody about the things that you were doing, but uh, we were turned on, and uh, I've been turned on ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I retired in 1990 and I had about 40 years at the laboratory, uh, space is still one of the more exciting things for me. Well, uh, Mr. Raggio, this was this was a lot of fun, and congratulations on the anniversary. The one thing I might add to this is that at that time, because things were so tense between the two countries, uh, we were allowed a degree of freedom that we really don't enjoy today, and that is that uh, most Congress people really don't understand what research and development is, and the development aspect of it happens to be uh, the assessment of your failures. And so, consequently, you learn from making mistakes. You, the, the whole process is learning. And what happens nowadays is that uh, uh, generally Congress only wants to hear a success story. So, consequently, you're you're limited to doing less. Space business is risky business. Things that look like failures are actually part of the experimental process. Yeah. But this is such a public experiment that it just... It, it doesn't get interpreted the same way by the public. No, and and I, I don't think that, uh, uh, again, the, the general populace uh, really appreciates what a risk it is every time you do something in space. By the way, we're nowhere near finished with studying the Earth's radiation belts. In 2012, we're launching the radiation belt storm probes to try to better understand the relationship between solar activity and the fast-moving electrons and ions in space because that kind of space weather can affect the many important satellites currently spinning around the Earth. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, snakes hear through their jaws. Story two, possible master's degree in creation science in Texas. Story three, contact lenses that display info. And story four, college students responsible for almost half of all internet movie piracy. Time's up. Story one is true. Snakes don't have external ear parts, but they do have fully formed inner ears that are connected to the jawbone. They rest the jaws on the ground and pick up 
vibrations that way. For more, check out the January 24th episode of the Daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science. Story two is true. The Institute for Creation Research was already given preliminary approval by the Texas Board to offer master's degrees in creation science in that state, but the Institute asked for the final ruling to be postponed after it received some further questions from the Board. That's according to the Chronicle of Higher Education. The Institute's own website lists tenets including that humans were created in fully human form from the start, that the first humans were Adam and Eve, and that the Earth was created in six days. So since everything's already known, what would the theses be about? And story three is true. Contact lenses with displays could be coming. University of Washington engineers used microscopic manufacturing techniques to combine flexible contact lens material with imprinted electronic circuits and lights. They presented their results January 17th at the Conference of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. All of which means that story four about college students being behind almost half of all internet movie piracy is totally bogus. But what is true is that the Motion Picture Association of America has been making that claim for more than two years, according to the New York Times. Last week, the MPAA said it had gotten its math wrong and that college students are actually behind only 15% of movie piracy. But the association still wants federal legislation requiring colleges themselves to stop piracy. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Siam podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com and check out numerous features at siam.com, including the latest science news, videos, and blogs. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>